Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, and welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, refreshed, recharged, rejuvenated, Zach Boniker. Zach, how I'm, you doing? I'm good. I'm feeling recharged and rejuvenated. <laughs> good adjectives tonight, right? Also joining us tonight, Dan Greening. Dan, how are you tonight? Well, I'm jet-lagged because I just returned from the Philippines, and... Um, I'm exhausted, and so I'm the converse of Zach. Dan is not refreshed. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Zach and I get in the no estimates discussion every once in a while. Huh. Well, I hang out with kind of, I have some agnostic, semi-agnostic friends. You know, of course, they're in the Kanban camp, and they are uh, semi-no estimates people. But when you push them to the wall, they say, well, you can count the number of items you complete and you can use that for forecasting. And then I say things like, but then you have to have this ginormous backlog in order to represent your long-term future. And, uh, and they go, yeah. And then they change the subject. <clears throat> <laughs> that well, sounds no, about right. We like to get in those conversations, you know, when we start talking about what do we do, why do we do it, what options do we have, what works, what doesn't, 
you know, what would be better? Like, to be honest, it's pretty just harmless in, wow, what, what might happen if this were the case, you know? And, and there's a few individuals that that concept touches on their very livelihood and they depend their professional cost estimators and their know-it-alls. And, and it just turns into this really just terrible conversation. Like, I don't even know how else to describe it. It, it actually drains my soul to the point where my Twitter block feed consists of just one individual. It's almost just a continual state of disbelief that an adult, and this is someone who's a CXO level person, oh. legitimately, who's behaving like this. And I, I love the idea of looking at estimation and thinking, do we really need to do Monte Carlo simulation? Right. Do we really need to go to the nth level of precision and the nth level of depth into each and every feature and topic of a project? and come up with this nonsensical number because we have accidental complication, you know, the complication that occurs when people are, are just not good at their job, and we have essential complication for all the natural crazy things that are going to happen regardless of every right. risk remediation process and plan that you put in place, and we're supposed to pretend that we're giving a, some kind of document or number that people should be making multi-million dollar decisions on, and we're going to say that's good. And, and so I question that. Yeah, you know, I we all do, right? I just want to see, can we take a swag at it, get a little bit of work done, create a new forecast off of the actual, yeah, and then start building off of that? And that seems to be blasphemy to a very small subset of people. Well, my, my big argument is that if you don't have people do that kind of estimation, people don't really think about architectures. They don't yes. think about the complexity or what are the real issues and what are the risks and all that stuff. And yeah, I know that, you know, those risks are there, like you said, that they're going to get in your way and they're going to surprise you. And half of the things that you estimate are going to be completely wrong. But the fact that you estimated them means that you've done at least, a, you know, a minimal amount of architectural decision making or thinking said, hey, so I want to see a backlog with a forecast horizon that's somewhere between two months and six months long. And that is like severe blasphemy, right? That's saying, and, and when you first confront people with that, they say, well, uh, so you mean I have to have 200 estimated backlog items in my backlog? And I'm going, no, actually, I don't want that. I want you to have a maximum of like 40 backlog items or 50 backlog backlog items that represent two to six months worth of work and they go how can we do that and I'm going well you know you need to estimate about a sprint or two sprints worth of little backlog items that are going to go into your sprint and then the next one to two sort of sprints worth like 14 items they should be 10 times as big and then they go they, they, they like some kind of cork blows up in their brain, right? Like, oh, no, that means I'll have to spend a week estimating every one. And I'm going, no, I want you to spend less than or half an hour estimating every one. It's crazy. But, but when you have that sort of big, chunky estimate stuff, what people think about is what are the big, chunky risks they have to worry about? And then they start doing architecture in their head. You can see it happening. I just sort of love watching it. You know, yeah. people are going like, 
Oh, you're saying we have to accommodate a million hits an hour. Oh my God, how do we do that? You know, like, and then then they think about it and they go, Oh, okay, I guess that would take about three weeks or four weeks or two hundred points or whatever it is. Yeah. So, so the the no estimates, you know, mindset is going to say, You're right. There, the, look at that value in that conversation. How can we build that value into just what we do as a, you know, a work system without having to explicitly do like an estimation event to get that value? Is there a way? What okay, that, good. You, know? you figure so. it out and call me. <laughs> <laughs> the ironic part is that I'm a huge fan of planning poker. Uh-huh. I love the concept as far as getting people into the, the mindset of fast a- estimation where the conversation is more important than the number. Yeah. And so I, I think it's wonderful. And if people progress down that lean path and they do, I really think Neil Killick's slicing heuristic is, is interesting. Mm. And so getting a, a story sliced down to a one and getting a team very good at being able to break their work down into one, 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 all of a sudden, you know, lean thinking kicks in. It, you're really just looking at throughput. Right. And I think that's, that's fascinating. But I, in my opinion, it's advanced. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a new team thing. So I think you start with the planning poker, you progress to, all right, we now know after years and years of working together as this single team with very low variance and um, turnover, you know, we understand how we work, we understand our domain, now we understand what a one looks like, now we can start looking at throughput. Right. But it's not a day one activity. Right. And, and I, would, I would support that too, even in this sort of fractal model that I'm describing, but Basically, you do that at the last stage when you're pulling stuff into the sprint. And, yes. uh, and I still want big, gigantic estimates for these other things because otherwise you have hundreds of items in your backlog. And when you have hundreds of items in your backlog, think about the cognitive burden that you put on the product owner making decisions between which micro item should go in front of which other micro item, right? Like no one's going to do that with 200 items. They're not going to why 56 is higher priority than 57. Right. That's just not possible. What they really need is they need to make decisions between like 10 different things. Like what is it more important to have a million hits in an hour or is it more important to have five nines reliability? You know, like someone has to tell us this. Yeah, and it's the non-functionals, like what you're talking about, it, it, that really, that's an intelligent argument, right? So that's something that we really should talk through and decide how are non-functionals handled in a no-estimate situation. And, and I think that's an important discussion. Mm. I, would, I agree with the epics. I love having ep- epics on a backlog. The PO cannot figure out everything up front. No. Just as, I, just as development teams cannot estimate everything up front with any kind of accuracy. So you have to have these big nebulous ideas that are uh, decomposed into these smaller chunks and smaller chunks. And you know, five or six conversations later, you have this smaller story, and we all understand what we're doing. We've had, we got the card, the conversation, and the confirmation right from the old uh, uh, story card format, the Ron yes. Jeffries, the three Cs, right? And then once we're there, we go. And I, I think it's a beautiful model. And if we could just get everyone to that point, I don't think I think the no estimates conversation would go away. Yeah. You know, if everyone's working like that, there's no reason to 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 start fighting against estimates anymore because that would be a wonderful way to do work. Right. It's like a sideshow sort of, right? I mean, I, I think 
one of the things that's really frustrating to me is that this is, I think the no estimates crowd is getting power from the fact that people are abusing the agile term. They're not really agile. They're like getting into these slog meetings that last for hours and hours where they're taking an hour to estimate a dinky story, right? We haven't seen teams spontaneously, you know, do low-cost estimation. So basically, we're just going to get rid of estimation completely. And that's kind of sad. But I think we should, you know, like I... like. Zach says, uh, you know, we should cure the agile cancer, <laughs> not kill the patient. <laughs> well, and I think that's also an, an interesting discussion. It's an area that I think has needed a lot of work. It's an area that Zach and I have talked about before previously on the podcast. It's really the patterns that companies demonstrate as they become agile. And I'm curious if you could could start with just a high-level overview and then perhaps we'll walk through and, uh, and talk through uh, these five important base patterns. Okay, so um, the general idea is that there's a lot of people who have been asking, are we agile? And then people, you know, give them some kind of arbitrary list of, you know, things that they should be doing that are agile. And then some people that say that Kanban is agile. And some people say that, no, that's not true. Kanban is lean and all sorts of other crazy stuff. And I got kind of frustrated with it because I think they're all in the same pile. So I think lean, uh, Kanban, uh, Agile in general, and Scrum, and Lean Startup, and XP, and all that stuff are really trying to solve basically the same problem. So the problem is this, that we, have, uh, we are doing creative things things that we've never done before in environments where the basically the economy that we're operating in uh, is changing rapidly. And it's changing in ways that we can't predict uh, with any certainty over the long term. Over the short term, we can kind of predict it. So those kinds of uh, economies, I guess, are, are... what are called chaotic economies. Things are chaotic if you can predict roughly what's happening in the short term, but as time goes on, it gets less and less predictable. And so at some point in the future, you're not able to predict. And so if you try to plan a project that's long term, like let's say 12 months or six months, you could be totally wrong. And then you could spend lots and lots of time building this thing and lots of money. And then you unleash it on the world and you discover, oops, you know, uh, the world has moved on or our conception of the world was totally wrong. So all of those techniques, Lean Startup, XP, Scrum, um, and even Pomodoro and getting things done, all have this idea that you want short-term activities and then you test them against your environment and then you adapt to what you see and you just keep going all the time. So, uh, so I took all of those methodologies and I broke them down into their constituent parts and then I clustered those constituent parts together to try to find what are the common elements of these things 
And there were five patterns, as we talked about. And they're very simple, actually, it turns out. But the simplicity actually creates a challenge because once you start articulating them, people go, oh, we don't do that. And, and we call ourselves Agile or we're using Scrum, but we don't actually do that. So, so here, here they are in a nutshell. Uh, first, uh, Agile practices have to measure economic progress. And by that, I mean leading indicators for uh, what kind of goal you're trying to go for. So, uh, so a leading indicator for Scrum is our, is our velocity going up. Basically, are we producing? And then we, um, we, it turns out if you just measure that, that's pretty perverse. You end up generating lots of code really fast, and then you generate really buggy code. So most teams that start with velocity then ultimately realize they have to measure released bug count or, uh, you know, bug fix time or other things related to quality. Uh, and then... What we have now started to see a trend in the Scrum world is to add a third metric called happiness. So now you're measuring the speed they're producing stuff, you're measuring the quality of the code that you're producing, and then happiness is the team's happiness with the, um, the, the process that it uses. And that's, I think, a surrogate for a leading indicator as I like to say, for communication within the team. So all these things are leading indicators because they're really cheap to measure and you can measure them on recent activity. So that's Scrum, right? Like it measures that stuff. And if you think about all those metrics that I provided, they're all about cost metrics. So how much does it cost to build a predefined set of software that's embedded in a backlog? So higher velocity uh, decreases the cost, that's cool, and uh, lower bug count decreases the long-term cost, that's cool, and better communication through greater team happiness decreases the cost, that's really awesome too. And so, so that's kind of interesting about Scrum. So if we think about the metrics that are embedded in Scrum, Scrum is a production optimization system. So its economy is all about cost and production cost. But then if we look at the other side, on the value side, Scrum doesn't really tell us how that's done. And so uh, on that side, we have lean startup, and now we're starting to measure things that have value. We're saying, you know, what is the customer engagement? What is the net promoter score? What is the um, click-through rate? What is, you know, all these things that we measure on the value side. And it, it's interesting that Lean Startup virtually ignores the cost of developing software. So, <clears throat> so those two work together really well, Lean Startup and Scrum, or XP, which has a lot of equivalencies to Scrum, or Kanban, which is basically Scrum without a rhythm. And, uh, and, and so that's that one pattern. Are you measuring economic progress? So our discussion that we started out with was all about the no estimates crowd. And basically, they're hobbling one of our metrics. They're, they're saying, we don't want estimates because, you know, they're too hard to do. We just want to be uh, let alone to do our thing. And 
I guess I'm okay with that as long as we're measuring something that is related to production rate because that will help us fuel the other patterns that I'm about to talk about, like the next one. So the second pattern is, are you proactively experimenting to improve? So the idea here is that are you um, in a retro in Scrum? It's in a retrospective. You're saying, or in a retrospective, you should be saying, "Well, how did we do last time, last sprint? What were our metrics? Did we have a hypothesized result from you know whatever process changes we were going to make? And then." How did the hypothesis match up with the actual result? Was it a surprise? And what things were surprising? And what do we think the causes of those surprises were? So it could be that your velocity went way up because you added something cool to your ready criteria like, uh, you know, we will not accept something into the sprint that has dependencies. Or, you know, something like that will often radically change the production rate. So, um, if, and proactive experimentation puts a big burden on people who say they're agile but phone in their retrospectives. So, you know, like all of us have seen retrospectives where people, you know, stand around and say, well, it went badly and what are we going to do next time? And they go like, well, it went pretty well. And, you know, the people yelled at me and, you know, I don't think we should change anything because it seems to be going okay. <laughs> Right, so they 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 almost seem to um, either want to continue the status quo and just be very quiet about it, or who who observe and see the dysfunction, but they're just uncomfortable um, trying to address it directly. They're sure, right, around. exactly. There there can be many reasons that they do it. One is personal, like I just don't want to be bothered, and I just want to come into work and do my thing, and then I have an other another life outside, and I don't want to have to think too hard. But then there's the, the other one, like you said, where there's enormous pressures from above um, and experimentation actually creates danger for people because um, some of their experiments are going to work and some of them are not going to work. And so they have to start getting good at risk assessment and they need to run experiments that aren't too risky but actually produce you know, interesting results that help them improve over time. And, you know, those things are hard. So people just don't want to do them. So, uh, so that's the second pattern. And, you know, by the time you get to the second pattern, 80% of the people who claim they're doing Agile aren't doing it. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. it's kind of sad, right? So, uh, but, okay, so having a good retrospective gets you into the, you know, blessed camp of you got the second pattern right and having some kind of metric quality and production rate if you're doing Scrum or um, or, or on start the, the other stuff is, is it, it gets you into that groove that, okay, you've got two of the patterns that you need to have agility. And then the third pattern clinches the deal. It, it says, okay, now you really are agile if you're doing this and that is do you limit work and process. So Scrum tries to limit work and process by saying you must release every sprint or, you know, Jeff has said you must have a releasable increment 
what I mean by Jeff is Jeff Sutherland, the guy who invented Scrum. He said, says, you know, you have to have a releasable increment at the end of every sprint. Jeff had this, did this little tour of Silicon Valley recently, and he asked every team, like, are you able to release what you did to the consumer of your product, which might be another team, uh, at the end of your sprint? And 80% of the teams that he talked to said they did not, that they were on some other schedule. And actually, if you look at SAFE, SAFE has this idea of a release cadence, which some fixed number of sprints. And so what usually happens when you have that is that people load all sorts of crazy stuff in the last sprint, like testing or you know localization or something really important for the software. So what that really means is if you've got four sprints in a release cadence, then your release cadence is your true sprint. It's the only thing you can really measure production rate on because you actually are finally doing the act of producing the thing at the end. And so <clears throat> this is, I, I don't think this is as much of a challenge as the second one, but it's a challenge for many. And once you start articulating that, people go, oh, yeah, okay. And it, I, I, I remember going to teams and, saying, uh, you know, what's your sprint length? And a bunch of teams and one big company said, you know, our sprint length is two weeks because the boss said the two-week sprint is the ideal sprint to have. And I'm, I'm going, okay, cool. So I guess you're able to ship every two weeks. And they go, well, <laughs> no, you know, like, and I go, well, okay, so tell me all about that. And they go, yeah, we do two weeks of development, we do two weeks of development, we do two weeks of development, and then we take our developers and we have them work on a branch, and then we have our testers and our localization team work in the last sprint and finalize the deal. And, I, and I'm going, uh, okay, so let me take a wild guess that that last sprint, sometimes it doesn't take eight weeks to get to that point, you get to the fourth sprint and then you go, oh, there's some bugs and we got to fix something serious and, and it might take another two weeks and then maybe it's 10 weeks or maybe even 12 weeks and, and they go, hey, how did you know that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it's, it's sort of obvious on the face of it, right? Like if you, if you can't actually test in a sprint, and then you're deferring a lot of risk, and then you don't know what that risk is because, you know, we're dealing with a chaotic economy, and so it's just kind of crazy. Anyway, so that's the third. Uh, so, so when I had that conversation with people, then I would say, they would say, well, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to do? And I said, well, what I want you to do is tell the truth. So telling the truth means to tell people openly that you have an eight-week sprint, and then actually think of it as an eight-week sprint, and then think of that as a dysfunction or a thing to fix, an impediment to your agility, and see if you can get it down to six weeks. You know, and they go, really? And, and they say, won't the you know, VP you know, look weird at us, and the metrics will look bad? And I'm going, like, I've talked to the VP, and he understands this problem, and no, 
but having the honesty means that you'll improve over time. And the one, there were teams that did that, and they were became much more successful, actually. And they were the people that in this company that pioneered the idea of counting external bug count and other really interesting things. So, so those that you know the the question of won't that make our metrics look bad? That to me is one of the scariest questions that a scrum master faces. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. And, and it requires a lot of education, right? Like it. So we've, I've written about this that top down agile beats bottom up. By that I mean that having agile leaders who actually believe in measuring themselves and their entire departments using these mechanisms will improve that a lot, right? Because they're going to start measuring stuff and they're going to ideally be experimenting and they're going to have little failures too. And they're going to start realizing that metrics, you know, they're really important to have, but they also are, are most valuable if we don't put too much weight on them in terms of people's careers. What we're looking for is we're actually looking at an experimentation for a failure rate of about 50%. Um, for low-cost experiments, that should be the rate because around there is where you learn the most. What happens is if you have 100% success all the time, you don't know whether the failure point is really close, but you're just missing it every time, or you're missing failure by a mile, right? And the same on the other side. If you, if you miss your proposed velocity 100% of the time because you're trying to be overly aggressive about it, you, may not, you might not even be close at all, you know? And, or you might be super close. And if you just, like, squeak down a little bit, you'd start getting a little bit of success and you can see... Um, what changes you're making in processes that are improving your results. So I often tell people, if I see 100% success or 100% failure in a team, that means to me there's a, that needs to be fixed first. Yeah, it almost feels like those type, of, um, those type of outcomes are kind of what we talked about just a second ago about really just letting the status quo be or, or making excuses for that dysfunction. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, success ratio kind of just feels like you're watering down things to the point where you're just kind of letting the status quo slowly hang on. And a zero <laughs> in like a zero percent failure rate with your experiments just means again, you're not really addressing it. You know, you're really kind of just making excuses for it. You're not trying to actually get in there and, and potentially solve it. Yeah, um, I wanted to say too, there was. Um, again, I know after having, you know, talked and worked with you, um, I know you've got five base patterns and it's been really, really awesome to get such an in-depth, um, discussion on them. <clears throat> but I want to say you said something a second ago about <clears throat> the honesty of an eight week sprint, right? Yeah. Okay. So again, not making excuses for the status quo, <clears throat> not ignoring the dysfunction, calling it an eight week sprint. But you were talking about the traditional scrum model of, Hey, two weeks. And this is what the company was doing, was saying, hey, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. Yeah. Um, I really thought it was worth pointing out that this has been a big topic for me lately in, in my transition with, with companies, is instead of asking them and saying, cool, you're doing an eight-week sprint now. What can we do now to get to that ideal state of two weeks? 
is yeah. you looked at what the smallest increment towards that could be. And you said, let's try six. Let's get good at that first. Yeah, yeah. And then let's try to improve. And to me, that's such a, that's such a wonderful thing to hear, right? Because I think there's so much attention on what, you know, like the Scrum framework and the Scaled Agile framework, big picture, and all these, all these ideal states. And I feel like so many of our organizations are just so far from being able to sustain that. That to give them the ability to say, let's take steps toward it and focusing instead on the tra- on the transition, that is it's just wonderful to hear. And I, so I, I heard that and I just went, that was great. Six weeks. Yeah. Can you do six weeks? And that's a, <laughs> that's a huge win instead of just trying to get them to do two weeks. I, I loved hearing that. So, so one of the funny things is that I have concluded, you know, there is a cost to having a short sprint cycle um, the, because you have to repeatedly do something. And so, uh, for example, I, I did this on a napkin with some buddies at uh, Agile 2015 where I'm going, okay, so let's look at the testing cost when we move to Agile for an 18 project and let's just presume that everything goes perfectly in this 18-month project. So regression testing happens in this last phase of this 18-month project and uh, you only have to do it once because everybody's perfect, right? So, <clears throat> so that testing cost is, let's call it X. You know, like three testers for um, 18 months worth of testing. Okay, so $300,000, let's say. Mm-hmm. So, then, um, so then let's go to Agile with just one month sprints. And uh, let's compute how much regression testing has to be done over this time period. So when you think about the first sprint, well, testing is really easy. It's 1 18th of the functionality that you would normally have. And so you have 1 18th X of work there. And then, but then the second sprint is 2 18ths, and the third is 3 18ths, and the fourth is 4 18ths. And pretty soon you've got, you know, a uh, and the reason for that is because you're accumulating functionality over time and you have to test all of the previous functionality you did in previous sprints as well as the current one. So if you take all of that and you add all of that testing work up, you get nine times X. So in other words, uh, nine times X is 27 uh, testers. So we've increased the cost of testing from $300,000 to $2.7 million if you stick with manual testing, right? And I, I think people, so, so what, I'm, eventually I'm going to get back to <laughs> our the previous conversation. But, but, uh, but what's interesting about that is that actually explains a lot of Agile's so-called dysfunctions. You know, some people say Agile produces crappy code, you know, like it's really buggy. And I think that's an artifact of these people ignoring the accumulating cost of testing, having a bunch of manual testers and being super lazy about it and not even realizing that it's, you know, this coming train wreck. So, uh, so what they, so what they do is they have three testers and then all the developers do just development. And then they got about uh, you know a quarter of the way in, and now the testers are working you know pretty full time to do all this testing every sprint, and then they run out of steam, and then no one has realized that they need to automate yet, and so they're out of steam and they can't test everything, and the 
team continues to ship because we tell them they should ship. And then, uh, and then they start producing crappy code and people go, what's wrong? And they go, well, we're agile. <laughs> and, and they're producing crap. And so, uh, they, of course, they have to automate uh, because what is happening is, I, I guess this is illustrating the point I was trying to make, that agile has a cost. And that cost is that you have to repeatedly do things that you only had to do once before. And so there's a limit to that cost. We can't go to one-day sprints always. Sometimes we can, but it depends on the work. And so um, I like uh, what you said, Zach. I think it's, uh, it, it's true that we have to start where we are, you know, and we have to start gradually get better and we may find that in certain circumstances we can't go any lower than a certain thing because of the type of work we're doing so or until I, we address it right until sure. we, again, we we can almost look at that as exposing some it may not feel like dysfunction but if you think about it from a technical excellence standpoint it that's fairly dysfunctional well, it <laughs> and is, so we start it, to address it yeah yeah i think it is when we're talking about web um, but when we're talking about hardware, maybe not. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and and I, uh, one of the purposes of these agile base patterns is to move away from the agile manifesto for software development as a definition for agile. So, you know, I I looked at that thing, and I, you know, we've all tried to sort of beat this horse. Like we go to the CEO and we say, hey, the whole company should be agile. And the CEO goes, well, what's that? And then we hand him or her the uh, agile manifesto for software development. And it talks about shipping working code to customers, right? And so, okay, uh, you know, they don't even know what that means, <laughs> right? And how it applies to them. Sure. And, and, and so... Uh, so I think defining Agile in a more generic way actually improves the ability to communicate that. So, uh, but in any event, I do think that Agile, Agile has a benefit, right? Like the benefit is that we are able to surf chaos better and therefore we can beat the crap out of our competitors if we're doing a better job of Agile than they are. But there's a cost to that and I like I like it when we tell people the truth about that because I think they, because if they know there's a cost, they can prepare for that. So they can not be hiding their head under the you know, sand about testing, manual testing costs. They can say, well, if we're going to do Agile, we really have to address the manual testing stuff right up front. Like we're going to start this project and sure testing should be easy, but we've got to handle that right now. Um, and, and other things that relate to uh, releasing a product like localization, if you're actually shipping something that's localized to a hundred different languages every two weeks, that's kind of hard using traditional translation mechanisms. So <clears throat> you have to think of something and some creative yeah. things to do. Yeah, well, know, I yeah. think the other important point there is that being agile isn't the goal, right? And I think right. that gets lost in a lot of conversations. You hand the, the manifesto to the CEO, 
And you say, we got to be agile, we're going to be agile, this is how we're going to check the box and be agile. And really, we're just trying to optimize organizations and optimize delivery. And right. so for the economies that they're operating in, and some of them are slow. Absolutely. And some companies, a, a five or six week sprint may be the most responsible way to stay in, in alignment with HR, marketing, all these other departments. And it's the most cost effective way for that domain or that organization to actually deliver software, which makes Agile a success because it discovered that limitation. Yeah, and yeah. I think I love realize that that's the goal. I think is incredibly important and and often gets lost. You, you yeah. know, I want to challenge. I, I want to challenge that a little bit, though, Ryan. Because let me look at it from this perspective. If 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 we're talking about agile, for, uh, you know, as a software development, you know, the 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 agile manifesto for software development, that clearly is the goal: is to be releasing to customers, you know. As, as as short a time frame as possible. Sure, you get market cadence that you have to. If I'm a big financial, you know, software provider, I get it. My my clients, they're going to regression test the heck out of their multi billion dollar, you know, of assets that they're. Holding. I, I understand that they only want two releases a year. Sure, but being able to get my software to a state where if they could take it, I could ship it to them is kind of that ideal state. So it's almost that from an internal perspective, we can develop it beyond, um, you know, beyond what the market cadence is. We could just be in the state where we could ship it to them. So, I mean, it's pretty clear in that goal um, by, by, by saying, Hey, you know, maybe six is about as good as B at that time because of market cadence, I would, I would say is, is almost a little bit too soft, or at least what that what that that ideal state of the the manifesto for agile software development. Well, but this I would is push what back. Is really, really radical about what about well, well what's, what's really radical about what Dan's doing here um, is if you've noticed in all three of the 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 patterns that we've discussed so far, there's never anything. I mean, the word software, you know, development doesn't doesn't occur anywhere. I mean, so right. so. Perhaps maybe saying, okay, whatever we're doing, we could run on six-week cycles or, or less or more or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It really speaks to you know, what the organization does and how it operates rather than the specifics of the Agile software uh, man- manifesto, which is exactly the problem that you know, Dan brought up. You take that to the CEO and they go, well, this, isn't, this, is, the, this is a developer's thing. And what Dan is, is creating is the, the environment for us to speak to potentially anybody in any organization. And I think that's, I don't know, for me, that, that's, that's, that's pretty big on my mind. It kind of opens it up a lot. I think I would push back on, on one area. And in the, in the manifesto, it's very clear that agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. Yeah. And that constant pace is going to be different. Um, yeah. And it even goes on. There's another, there's a few more principles that I think help this discussion. You know, deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months yeah. with a preference to the shorter time scale. So I agree they want shorter, but overall, sustainable pace, a short enough time scale, but our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. So we have three working factors here, right? First of all, we have to be sustainable. Secondly, we are. Um, delivering within a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And finally, it's delighting the customer or satisfying the customer. And if we hit those in a six-week six sprint, can we still be successful? And I, I would argue yes. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I like what Zach said, but more that it's an interesting thought experiment. Um, right. It, it's like, it's, it's almost turning um, you know, theory of constraints a little bit on its head. Uh, that now it's it's not really a pull model. It's sort of like the pull isn't totally there. So what you're actually doing is you're creating this inventory of code that's just ready for the customer whenever they're actually ready to pull, right? Like so. <laughs> so it's still it's still a constraint. It's that the customer's the constraint. The customer is not able to consume the stuff as fast as we're able to deliver it to them. And so I do think that it, it, it's interesting because I have been thinking about systemic, uh, uh, systemic problems, which I think are, are both, you know, before we started having this conversation, I was thinking they were totally, like if you're looking at a team, the, the constraint, there's a constraint on the, depend, the uh, agility of the team based on who they depend on. So, so if they depend on other teams and the teams, you know, have an eight-week sprint, but this little team that is, you know, has a two-week sprint, it doesn't really matter in a way because, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that takes eight weeks to change to get to this little team. And, uh, and, and so they have... In, in order to improve their own agility, they have to reach out beyond the boundary of that little team and educate people they depend on to start being more agile. Sort of like Toyota, you know, like when it it uh, it it famously had this just-in-time model throughout the the plants, and and so basically a customer would make an order and they would say, oh, a customer made an order, we got to get going and we got to build the chassis and build the body and build the uh, wheels and, and put, build the tires. And then someone says, hey, wait a minute, we don't build tires, we order them from a tire manufacturer. And then the, you know, people say, okay, well, we better go order the four tires we need for this car. And they go to the tire manufacturer and say, hey, we need four tires. And the Tire manufacturer says, you know, are you crazy? We, you know, you have to give us 90 days advance warning about how many tires you want. How many tires do you want over the next 90 days? And Toyota says, well, we don't know. We're just in time. So, <laughs> so that required Toyota to go out and say, okay, we're agile, but our tire manufacturers are not, and they're going to inhibit our own agility. And so we have to teach them how to be just in time as well. So, on the other side, here we have Zach asserting that, you know, and in a way he's right, right? Like we've got the customer, they're the final puller of the stuff. Um, but from the end customer, like the people who are re really using this stuff, uh, they are not uh, getting the agile benefits exactly, right? Like there's this being impediment and that's you know, we, the software developers who are serving this bigger organization, that's this kind of this behemoth. <laughs> anyway, well, it's interesting. Well, I favor, I favor oh, Zach's oh, thinking. I'd rather crush the impediment yeah. and go to that pull model. I, I, I'm okay with a backlog of, of increments of software that the business can pull at will. Yeah. I mean, I, but also trying to think holistically, what does that do to the business side? Does, and what does that do to cost and, I just think it's an interesting, like you said, thought exercise. I don't think either one of us are necessarily wrong. It's just 
which philosophy is going to fly with the decision makers and with the teams and what's going to make most sense. And I actually think both models can work very well. And it really plays into your fourth pattern, actually, which is embrace collective responsibility. You know, once they make that decision about what kind of environment or organization they're going to be, they really have to bond around that and, and really make that decision and go. Yeah, so we should talk about that, I guess. So um, so I talked about these three patterns, like you're measuring leading indicators uh, for your economy, you're um, uh, proactively experimenting for improvement, and then you're limiting work in progress. And if you have those three, I have asserted that you are agile. You know, that de- the deed is done. If you can actually keep that up, more power to you. But in fact, what we've all seen is that agility is not sustainable unless we add some more stuff. And so one of the things that we have to add is this collective responsibility idea, which is you join a team, and by joining a team, you agree that I agree that I will be personally responsible for the collective output of this team. And that state of uh, responsibility is a pretty tall order for most people. It means that if you say that, it means you can't really blame other people for the fact that you weren't able to ship your software at the end of the sprint. You can't blame the testers if you're a developer, and you can't blame the stupid HR department that doesn't let you hire more testers, and you can't blame the stupid organization that is constantly pressuring you to put out software even though it's not, you know, it's filled with bugs. Now you are taking personal responsibility, and so what that means is you have to fix it when these challenges appear. These are impediments that you have to approach. And uh, so having that sense of collective responsibility kind of creates a I think an agile machine in a way, right? Like now people are willing to adapt because otherwise they're going to be responsible for a failure. So, uh, so you know, we discover that there's too much testing load in the team and, te- and, and engineers, developers say, oh, well, maybe I can help with that. Or, uh, you know, we lose a database person and someone says, well, you know, we're going to fail to ship unless we do something. And then they either hire immediately another dev- uh, database person or they learn enough to database to actually do the job or they try to drag the, you know, whatever it is they're going to try to do to make that team successful. And so that that creates this, I think, really holistic um, idea within the team that makes it more sustainable, that agility is more likely to stay in the context of a changing workload. So, so this, this actually goes, though, I mean, when we talk about collective responsibility, it could be beyond the team. It could be a, a manager thing. It kind of feels like the first thing I do when things don't go my way is I check where I am in the, the work system. Right. You know, I ask upstream first, is there anything that we did that could have contributed to this or that we could change or affect and then work your way down, right? Rather than yeah. what it feels like most organizations do is say, oh, that launch didn't go well. Well, what the heck, team or tester or whatever, right? Who should I fire? <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> yeah, it's that, it's that, what's that old, that old um, thing they used to call in the scrum world for a product owner, the, 
the single ringable neck, you know, right? That yeah. that doesn't seem to support the idea of collective responsibility. Yeah. So, where's my th- Where's my throat to choke? Yeah, no. I've uh, <laughs> I've stopped. I, I used to, I, I will admit that I used to use that phrase, but I have stopped using that phrase because I agree with you, you know, if your product owner is not um, doing their job, then other people can fill in for that, or you need to hire another one or something, but the only way to do that is for people on the team to feel personally responsible for having a good product owner. Yeah. And uh, and I've seen teams that actually did do that. Um you know, that they helped educate their product owners and the product owners became much better. So, so anyway, that's the fourth pattern, that collective responsibility idea. And the fifth pattern. Hey, Dan, can I ask one more question on that? In your, in your mind, so collective responsibility, this is for me, clearly a, a cultural thing, less like measuring economic progress and, and adaptively for me, this is culture. Right. Okay. Yeah. So could this, could this go all the way to say, I mean, is there a limit to where this should stop or is this, I mean, even no. a, a CEO of an organization feels, you know, responsible. Absolutely. I think the CEO should feel responsible. And I think right. the, I, I, the way I, you know, the biggest problems that we have with collective responsibility are not necessarily at the team level. I mean, when you're looking at big organizations, you know, one of the things that happens in these big organizations is most people are operating at the level of the team and they just assume that the geniuses at the VP level or, you know, they don't even, it's almost a mystery. Like how did those people get those jobs? And, you know, and even at the top, people are wondering how they got the job right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> But what happens is the role differentiation at the VP level is really extreme. And, and, uh, and yet, there are these really important things that VPs should be collaborating on, on and they often don't. So HR-related things are really, every VP should be very interested in. You know, what are the job descriptions? What is the promotion structure? How do we do performance reviews? How do we do all that stuff? They should be totally into that stuff and they should be working very hard to to improve teaching, coaching, mentoring in the organizations. And by far, most VPs, that is the furthest thing from their mind. They're spending most of their time doing tactical stuff because the CEO came in and barked about something and then they all jump and uh, try to address it or they assign it to someone or they blame someone else, right? So so they definitely could benefit from this collective responsibility idea that, yes, I am the VP of finance and the engineering department ships late all the time. What can I do to help that situation? Yeah. Right, that's a kind of a challenge, right? But I think that you know the beyond budgeting people are telling us that there's plenty of stuff that the finance department can do to help with uh, engineering producing late software. So it's it's very interesting. I, I just think that 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 what I love about these patterns. I, I mean, I'm of course I'm really happy about the outcome, but it just feels so good to me because. I feel like I can go to a VP and I can just, you know, run through these patterns and figure out how agile they are. And, uh, and so, uh, 
so we did talk about the fourth pattern, and I want to talk about the fifth one, then I want to talk about a project I'm doing with Scrum Inc., which I think is really interesting. So, um, so the fifth pattern is this idea of um, solving systemic problems. So, yeah, you can do the three base, basic Agile patterns, and now you're Agile, and then you can have collective responsibility, and now with that, you actually have this resilient agility within your team that you know you can deal with whatever onslaught the world is going to you know s- strike you with, and then now we get hung up with this idea that we depend on these other teams or we depend on outside suppliers uh, for things, and they're not agile or they have constraints on their ability to deliver that is impeding our own agility. And so in order to solve those problems, you really have to reach out. You have to be a diplomat, essentially. Uh, So the team has to start saying, hey, you know what? We depend on these other teams, and they ship us buggy code every time, and now we're avoiding taking their software, and instead we're, you know, building on old software. Well, that's very unagile, right? Like we're not, as a system, we're not able to uh, ship recent infrastructure code in our system because we're so afraid that this software they're delivering us is is buggy. So we should be reaching out and helping them, but then you find territorialism, you find, you know, not invented here, all sorts of challenges face us when we start trying to mentor, coach, and train other teams that we're depending on. And yet, this challenge is one that's required to maintain agility when you're in a bigger system than a single team. And so this is the one that we break our teeth on a lot. You know, like there's definitely one or two, you know, fired people along the <laughs> roadkill highway, right, that, that have tried to, to deal with this, how do we interact with other people diplomatically and how do we bring them into our Agile tent uh, without alienating them and all that stuff. And so that's a hard one. And uh, I'm starting to write about it. Um, and I'm, I think I have to write about it with not all the answers uh, because I'm not sure that we have all the answers yet. That, but there are certain patterns, sub-patterns in that solving systemic problems that we're all familiar with. So one of them is... Uh, uh, is uh, what's it called? Theory of constraints. So the theory of constraints is this idea that your system is composed of a series of dependencies that actually finally deliver something to the customer. And uh, some of those dependencies are really fast and some of them are ridiculously slow. But because those dependencies are buried inside the system, we don't even know that that's the thing that's impeding our, our speed. And so we generate all sorts of inventory of code, or if you're a manufacturing plant, lots of inventory of shelved parts and stuff like that. And, the, and at the end, the only way we know something's wrong is that the customer ordered something and it takes them months and months and months to get it. And yet, if you actually looked at the, the production line, it shouldn't... It, if we didn't have any of this crap sitting in there. It should take just a few weeks to get to the customer. And so when you do that, you start having, you analyze the whole system. You look at 
what are all the dependencies, what's their actual throughput, who are the people that are most constrained, who are the teams that are most constrained, and then you do this radical weird thing. You say, okay, we're going to take that slowest team and we're going to slow every other team down in this uh, production chain to the speed of that team. And that, you know, people lose their minds over that, right? Like they go, you've got to be kidding. That's not efficient. We're not keeping people busy all the time. And so, and yet what's happened when you do that is you, it's, it's pretty quick that you reveal, okay, this is the slowest team. And look, we've got all these extra resources that we have freed up because we've slowed all these teams down. Why don't we put some of those resources on this super slow team and speed it up a little bit? And so they speed it up and guess what? The whole system starts going faster. And then it becomes not the impediment anymore, not the constraint. And then other teams become the constraint and you just do the same thing all over again. So this is thinking about the teams as a sequence that are serving the customer and we do something which is counterintuitive to us. We always think that having all the resources busy is the most efficient way to produce something, but it's not. So th that, that, uh, that theory of constraints idea is one of those. Um, there's, uh, you know, five-wise uh, problem solving where we look at all the reasons that problems occur and then we look farther back at even, uh, you know, more indirect reasons and more indirect reasons until we actually find kind of key dysfunctions in the organization that if we just fix those dysfunctions that all these things would start going really fast. So in a sense, they're kind of, the you know, they're dependencies, but they're, all of these dependencies, they're sort of hidden. And uh, only in, if we start thinking systemically can we really address them. And yet, when we think systemically, we create diplomatic challenges in virtually every case. And so that, to me, is, uh, you know, our biggest challenge in Agile is, is dealing with that because people's careers are at stake, uh, you know, their, even their self-conception in the organization, how, how do they operate? And this is where we get resistance to Agile and mid-level managers because, you know, this is it starts exposing problems that they may have caused for decades that no one ever knew about. And now they have to rethink how they do things or they're going to be lame and people are going to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so those are the five patterns, right? Uh, measure economic progress, uh, proactively experiment to improve, uh, measure limit, uh, limit work and process. Sorry and then uh, collective responsibility, and then finally this um, idea of solving systemic problems. So with those five, I think you get what I call expansive agility. So now having a team that has all five of these patterns, they're actually able to influence teams outside them and improve their agility as well, and they improve the whole organization as long as they're allowed to function that way. And that, that is our our greatest challenge is to protect those teams and those people that are actually doing that systemic problem solving because their job is very difficult. Hey, Dan, so I had a thought come into my head and, in, 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 you know, again, and thank you for giving us such a, you know, really articulate in-depth look at these, at these patterns and what drives them. You know, it's easy, 
it's easy one just to describe them because they you know they kind of make sense but you know really when you get down to some of the real mechanics behind it these are not um <laughs> these are complex patterns yeah without, without question um so something that kind of occurred to me would you know, thinking about the idea of adaptively experimenting and maybe limiting some of your work in progress, looking at the idea of collective responsibility, shared accountability. Um, there's been a you know real popular thing, as you know, in the last couple of years, and, and I think in almost all of our podcasts, we talk about it at some point somehow about scaling and what that means. Yeah. Um, and, and you've got this emergence of, you know, the scaled agile framework and discipline agile delivery and, and all clearly meant to be, you know, benevolent, beneficial to, to bring good thought to help organizations. But it almost seems like a company that hasn't begun the agile journey then that starts to go through um, and understand what this transformation means to them and what it looks like to them and just jumps right to something like safe. <laughs> that, that would almost be an agile or a, a, an, an anti-pattern of the agile organization, right? Because I mean, think about how many of those patterns it breaks by going from this is where we are today and we're just going to radically reinvent the organization to be like the scaled agile framework going to snap. Yeah. Uh, think I mean that, that breaks so many of the patterns, right? It, it's an yeah. an, it's almost an anti-pattern, right? It, you're we're not experimenting. There's clearly no limit in work in progress there. I mean, we're trying to, you know, eat the whole thing at once. Right. Uh, it just kind of a kind of kind of occurred to me maybe maybe that's what for me has felt so, um, um, you know, hard for me to, to, to accept and to, and to get behind, you know, some of these movements, I think maybe because I see yeah. some of that in the industry. Yeah. It's an, I, I think it's interesting and we all have had to solve agility from the bottom up for the most part. Right. Um, so, you know, that agile manifesto was written for little teams and then we applied it and it started to work for these little startup teams. But then, you know, we realized that we had bigger problems when we tried to deal with this in larger organizations. And, you know, even today we have people say that Agile is just for little organizations. It doesn't make any sense for big organizations. And I, I think the issue for us is we are little cogs in this machine and we see the world from the perspective of our little sphere. And so I think that's what SAFE did. It, it said okay, I'm dealing with this non-agile entity and I'm working down here at the bottom. So I need to, they are doing this expansive agility idea. They're expanding upward and then they're creating these structures like the release train and all this stuff up above. But But I think that, you know, it's maybe a hard discussion to have and it will take a while, but... It's so much easier, I think, to talk to a CEO or a CTO of a thousand-person organization and go through and say, okay, here are the principles of agility, and we need to apply that to you. Uh, So you need to be shipping full-on projects with your hardware and software all combined and whatever, and you need not to do it at an 18-month cycle. We need you to get it down to six, so that will limit your work in process. We need you to be experimenting with both the market and your production methods. You can't just sit on your butt all the time, and the goal is to get your agility better, so that six months should be dropping, and that's a metric to tell us you know, whether you're improving. And then you know, your quality should always be measured. It's almost all of the CMMI stuff, right? So uh, so if you can get 
the agile, if you can get the CTO or the CEO of that big organization to go, okay, I see how that works. I see how that benefits me in this crazy economy we're in. And I can see how it makes me a better innovator in that economy. And we could create a highly successful company. When they cross that threshold, I don't think it's hard at all to get the rest of the organization to follow through on Agile because they need the organization to be Agile in order to realize those goals. And uh, <clears throat> I think we have done ourselves a disservice by giving lip service to the executives here because they are the fundamental limiter for agility in an organization. And they are the people that really chafe when we're challenging them and they're going like, why are you challenging me? Agile is for engineers, you know, like go away. <laughs> and then we build these structures like SAFE that sort of preserve their, uh, you know, non-agile world at the top, top of the organization, but create these Baroque, you know, kind of adapters to their waterfall world so that we can be agile underneath and kind of get less and less agile as we go up the organization. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's what I think is really so powerful about this conversation and, and hearing you go into detail on the on these these patterns. Because you know, again, going back to the idea that <clears throat> I can sell this visual, this real picture, but I'm still talking about a software, an approach to developing software. And sure, my company may be a pure software development shop. Yeah. But, yeah. But when we talk about the patterns, about what this organization is, who it wants to be, and, and again, there's the, the aspect of, for, for me personally, some of these things are cultural. You know, This is a much, much more powerful tool set to engage with those people that drive real organizational transformation, the top, you know, the presidents, the CEOs, you know, those people. We can talk to them about who they want to become and why it matters and allow – we can evoke change – to, to allow the organization to become that dynamic or agile organization that fits, you know, them, the people yeah. that rather than just try to give them the framework and hope that it eventually it itself influences. It's almost this, this abstract version of a bottom up transformation, isn't it? Or I come in and I say, cool, at your execution at your development level, that's what the organization is going to look like. And hopefully that changes you up at the top rather than using the patterns to engage change from the very top. And I, I think that's really powerful. Mm. Well, let me ask you this, Dan. If if you have an organization or a culture that has embraced all five patterns, so let's say that they're continually doing adaptive experiments for improvement, they all embrace the idea of collective responsibility, they're limiting their work in process to ensure that they can do the right things, they measure that right thing, whatever that is, by looking at the economic progress, and they're solving systemic problems that get in the way of that progress, isn't scaling inherent to that? Well, if, right, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, that's, yeah, exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying is that if you do it at the top, it has to happen at the bottom. Basically, I, I it's so Zach, you said something that there, it's a little nuanced, and so I, I didn't know if I caught it correctly. But I think one of the things that I, you know, when I say top down, agile beats bottom up, a lot of people think, oh, that means that the CEO is doing what they normally do, which is they say, oh, Agile is the fad of the month, and we have to do that because I read it in Harvard Business Review. And so, uh, so they go to the engineering department, and they go, like, how come we don't have 100 scrum teams? And, and the, 
the you know the CTO says, well, you didn't tell me we had to have a hundred scrum teams, and I now have to hire some uh, you know trainers and stuff like that, and do this conversion and whatever. And then they go, okay, well, go do that. Uh, so so Isn't then, that just business as normal? That's the directive from the top to yeah. do something. Yeah, but that that isn't what I, I maybe this is the problem with saying top down agile beats bottom up. That's not actually what I mean by that. What I mean by that is that that I think is it essentially a bottom up implementation. So yeah. what I mean by top down agile beats bottom up is I mean a top down implementation. So the top says we are going to be agile first. And then what happens, I think, to Ryan's point is that it, it kind of creates agility on its own in a way. I, I kind of think that if you had executives do this, and, and I've seen executives that did do this, uh, you know, they, they read or they worked with someone, uh, you know, like a coach or something like that. And at the executive level and said, we want an, an agile organization, it's so much cheaper to convert an organization when that conversation is happening, you know, mostly at the VP and CEO level. Because what happens is they start getting into it and they go, oh, what should I measure and all that stuff. And then they go, I, my department, I need to ship a project every three months or less, right? That sounds ludicrous to us down at the team level, but in fact, that's an amazing feat for many companies. And so, uh, so the VP says, you know, I got to ship in three months or less. And then they look at their dependency tree with a hundred uh, teams in the dependency tree and you use some static analysis like I've done with big companies before and you compute, oh, well, the minimum lead time for anything through this crazy dependency tree is seven months. So I guess I got something to do. And now, now you have the org chart sitting in front of you and you go, well, I can tune the, the sprint cycle time, but it can't be the fake sprint cycle time because the fake sprint cycle time doesn't solve the problem. It just yeah. stays seven months. But if you actually get their real ship dates down, then you actually improve that. And then if you restructure the organization so you have more feature teams and less component teams, you solve another set of problems and you could actually squeeze that down and get that going. And now, but you have to have automated testing because you've got feature teams and you don't have automated testing, you've got a big train wreck. And if you, uh, you know, all these things just happen because the VP wants to deliver an ad. They want to be agile themselves. And so I, I, that's, I think, the nuance here is I, top-down agile is not the commander saying, hey, you guys be agile. It's the commander saying, I need to embrace these principles for myself, for my entire department. And, uh, and then we'll worry about you guys later. In a sense, it's them taking responsibility for their own stuff, which they often try to avoid. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that I think was the, if, you know, if I wasn't clear and, and you know, this, 
this is this is this happens to me all the time. I'm not clear in what I'm saying. Um, <clears throat> the idea that you know, with with a, a a prescribed organizational change to a scaling framework, to me, just feels like a bottom. Even though, oh, look, it's coming from the top, and the the CEO said, yeah, we're into this big transformation. You know, <laughs> it really feels like a bottom up because it really kind of just seems like business is normal. I told you to do something, now do it, rather right. than just like you said. Focusing on culturally changing, what does it mean for us as leaders to change at the top, and how does that influence the organization as it goes through the system downstream? Right, right. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, Dan, you mentioned that some of the these activities are, are perhaps in process with Scrum Inc. So, I'm curious, what do you have going on there, and how is that work playing out? Yeah. So, I can't talk about it too much, but I can talk about it in general terms. Um, so, uh, we are. Uh, I have. As, as these patterns have started to gel, I realize that they serve, they can serve a purpose for assessment and diagnostics for an organization. Um, and, it, you know, back in, about five years ago, we were talking about the Nokia test and, you know, you know, are your teams running a retrospective and are your teams, you know, what's their sprint length and a lower sprint length is better and all this other stuff that Boss Voda invented to deal with Nokia, which were all behavioral and he's sort of disavowed them since then, but I actually think they had merit for the maturity of the organizations he was dealing with and the maturity of our understanding of Agile at the time. I think those kinds of metrics are interesting. I think that they became dysfunctional because people would realize how to game them and other stuff like that. Regardless, though, um, I think assessment is really good because it tells you what you could work on to improve. And as long as people are not punished in the organization for failing to achieve those things, but instead we use that as a diagnostic tool for coaching and mentoring and training and for uh, focusing our attention, I think diagnostic tools are great. And so these five patterns create a structure for diagnostics, right? So when you go into an organization that has made an agile transformation or wants to make more of an agile transformation, what you can do is you can say, okay, so let's talk about metrics and there are you know a bunch of different types of metrics value and cost we talked about but there's also risk and elasticity metrics that are really important to agile and then uh, you can ask pointed questions about what are you doing in these different areas and then similarly with experimentation you can start understanding how are people developing hypotheses are they actually going out to peers do they have you know, are, are they reading recent research to decide what to try in their organizations and other stuff like that? That tells us whether they're really sincere about the experimentation stuff. And, and then limiting work and process is really about cycle time, largely, in these larger organizations. Um, and that cycle time can, in big organizations, you can analyze it using some of the static dependency stuff that I've done or with Monte Carlo simulation like Troy McGinnis does or well, there's a bunch of interesting things there but if you don't have any idea what your cycle time is then I would say your maturity on the 
limit work and process thing is like a big zero. <laughs> you don't even know, right? Uh, so, so uh, these. So what we're starting to do is we're going, okay, so let's take these tools and let's assess companies. And we have a company that has made a radical uh, transformation to Agile. And uh, it's, it's really remarkable, and it's not a software company. Um, and, and so uh, with this transformation, we're going to actually run an assessment. We're going to talk about... Um, you know, the remarkable results that they were able to obtain. And then we're going to talk about each of these patterns and how the things that they did fit into those patterns and, uh, and maybe even illustrate, you know, where are some opportunities for further improvement for this organization. So I'm just very, very excited about being able to work on a project like that. And, you know, of course, I, uh, I work with Jeff Sutherland and think he's an awesome guy. So, um, so that too is just a, a, a great pleasure for me. So uh, you should expect, I, I'm guessing that if we, if it really happens, which I think it will, um, it's publication is going to be six months or so, maybe eight months from now and something reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, as soon as you publish, uh, perhaps you'll come back on and, and talk through it with us. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Good. That would be fun. So I, I think we're actually, Dan, I want to be respectful of your time and Zach too. We're coming up on our time box. Or I think we've actually exceeded it. So perhaps <laughs> we, we've not kept to our sprint promise. We never but, uh, I think that's okay. Get together, right? <laughs> that's right. You know, Agilists never keep to their own time boxes. We did, just we just extend, as we, did we just extend our time box to complete the I, work? Oh my god! I think we did. I, know. I think we did. Failure. You should just tell the truth, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So really, it's an hour and a half podcast. Not there you hour. go. That is okay. Like my bad. Tell, tell people, and I don't even know if people want to improve it, but you you could ask them. <laughs> <laughs> and then we could prepare, and we could stop complaining about the no, you know, the no estimates people at the front, and we can get a nice clean, you know talk there you go people like and that uh, <laughs> that's right well dan at this point we usually have our guests uh any plugs any promotions anything that you have going on that you'd like to share uh along with ways that people can get a hold of you if they want to continue the conversation so blogs email twitter anything that you're willing to share uh, in those regards uh, would be much appreciated okay sure so um my site is senexrex.com, and there's a blog on that site that a lot of this work is published as it's produced. So uh, this is becoming a body of work that may assemble itself into a book. It's not necessarily clear, um, but I'm really interested in feedback, so I, I hope people will visit it and, and provide some feedback. Um, there is... Uh, something that I can semi-advertise uh, coming up. So HICS uh, is the Hawaii International Conference on System Science. Uh, they, the, it's meeting in Kauai, Hawaii uh, in January. And I love that conference because it's filled with people from all sorts of uh, fields, from information technology to lighting to electricity distribution to all sorts of stuff. And they're all about... 
um, how do systems interact with each other. And so Jeff and I and um, John Tripp are co-chairs of the Agile track for that. We've done that for years now. And this year, we have a really exciting paper coming out by not none of us, but uh, a submission that I really like is one that analyzed pair programming uh, in a meta-statistical way and uh, determined that, that based on uh, many papers, like a hundred and some papers, that it does look like pair programming is uh, more efficient as well as much more high, much higher quality production rates are coming out of pair programming. So that was a really interesting result, and I was really happy about that because uh, Capers Jones sort of famously threw a bomb out at the pair programming people about <laughs> six months ago, I think. Uh, anyway, that's that's coming out. That's that's really great. And then, of course, um, anyone that wants to talk about large-scale agility at the executive level. Uh, please contact me, uh, and and I'd love to have a conversation about that. So I'm at dan at senexrex.com. And also, I'll get a link to your uh, Twitter handle out there as well. Sure. Zach, how about you? Anything going on? How can people get a hold of you? Anything to promote? Well, you can just drop my, you know, Twitter and all that stuff into in the show notes. That's fine. Um, Y'all, for, for reading... You know, I'm I'm right there with you right now, Ryan. Going through Graham Wallace's The Art of Thought, mm, uh, right, just makes me wonder about some of the things we discussed here tonight. How I might apply to um, Wallace's kind of framework of of again the art of thought and how some of these things could have evoked the patterns that Dan you you've discovered and you know those thought processes. So. Kind of, kind of thinking about that. Um, I want to get in touch as well, hopefully about maybe writing a couple articles again on on Senex Rex. I'd I'd love to apply some of the base patterns that that we discussed to some of my engagements, and just I don't know if um, a case study or even just a white paper of real experience may help, uh, may or may may be useful. Mm. Um, and then yeah. lastly, in November, I'll be attending the Southern California Agile Leadership Summit. Um, was invited to participate in that. So um, one call from the organizers came out to you know those attending saying, really think about the topics that are meaningful to the community to bring to engage in the discussion. So if anybody has uh, various agile related you know topics, whether it be from a small you know from from the actual execution uh, uh, line of, of developing software to some of the executive uh, applications of agile that we discussed tonight, Get in touch with me. Let let me know so I can bring those you know to to the, the the summit and discuss them. Very good. And I'm your host Ryan Ripley. I'm at at Ryan Ripley on Twitter. Ryan at RyanRipley.com by email. RyanRipley.com is the website where you'll find this episode and past episodes, uh, along with other writings and ramblings about uh, many agile topics. Please do reach out. Your feedback is important. We want to hear how you think we're doing on this podcast. So please do reach out. Let us know what uh, what topics you'd like to hear, anything good or bad about uh, this or any past episode. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to leave us a comment on iTunes. Five is our favorite number, and five stars gets the, the word out about the podcast and helps us out quite a bit. And as always, we appreciate you being here. We love that you listen and can't thank you enough for your participation as the listener. Have a great night. 
Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.